Hi everyone, I trust that you are well and that you've had a good week and I'm looking forward to seeing some of you a little bit later on. I know that not all of you are going to be able to join us and if you are unable to join us today I want you to know that we're thinking of you and praying for you especially. We continue with our sermon series through the book of First Peter, After Suffering Glory. And we come today to that very subject, Christian suffering. Here in verses 9 to 17, Peter introduces the topic of suffering for being a Christian, and he'll continue this theme right the way through until chapter 4 and verse 19. And we're going to go slowly through these verses, because there's a lot here, and what Peter has to say to us is extremely important for us. When we looked last time at verses 8 to 12, we saw that Peter addressed the topic of unjust suffering, and we said that it wasn't clear whether he was speaking about behaviour happening in the church or in the world. Verses 9 to 12 are really transitional verses that can either point backwards to what Peter had to say about our behaviour in the church, or forward to what Peter has to say about what we might experience in the world. And so as we move into this theme of experiencing suffering in the world, we'll read them again. So First Peter chapter 3, verses 9 to 17. Peter writes, Do not repay evil with evil, or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The central thought that I'd like us to see in this passage today is found in verse 15 where Peter says, But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. What does this mean, and how do we do it? Firstly, what does it mean? Peter literally says that we are to sanctify Christ in our hearts. We are to make him holy. It's the same phrase that's used in the Lord's Prayer, where we pray, Hallowed be your name. We looked at the subject of holiness back in chapter 2, where Peter called us to be holy, 
And when we studied that passage, we said that to be holy means to be separate, to be set apart for God's particular use. And so here the NIV correctly translates the word sanctify as set apart, set apart Christ as Lord. I'm sure that at home you have a special dinner service or a special set of glasses that you only use on special occasions. Perhaps they're even kept in a special cupboard or display cabinet. That plate or that glass is more important than any of the plates or glasses that you have in your entire house. And if you're not sure which one it is, husbands or kids, just try and use it outside at the pry. Of all the plates that you own or have ever owned, this plate is the most important. To set apart Christ, then, means that Jesus is my most important relationship. Out of all the people that I know or have ever known or will ever know, he is to be for me the most important one writer says that to set aside Christ as Lord means to put him in a category all by himself, the highest place, the greatest value, the most supreme treasure, the greatest admiration, the most cherished prize, the one you esteem and honour and love the most out of all the persons and all the things in the world. Notice that Peter says that this is something that we are to do in our hearts, not simply with our lips. It's very easy to say that Jesus is the most important person in my life. But Peter is speaking about an inner settled decision. When he speaks about our heart, he's not speaking about our emotions, but rather the very centre of our being, the part that controls everything else. And notice that we are to set apart Christ as Lord. He is Lord of the universe and he is to be Lord of my life, in charge, in control. Peter gives us this command in contrast to a different kind of behaviour. There's a but at the beginning of the sentence which contrasts setting apart Christ as Lord with something else. He says, do not fear what they fear, do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 here. He quoted from this passage back in chapter 2. And let me remind you of the context for Isaiah chapter 8. In that chapter, King Ahaz of Judah is facing possible invasion by a foreign army and he's terrified. And in that situation, God says to Isaiah, Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord, Yahweh, Almighty, is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. Notice a couple of very interesting things here then. Isaiah said, The Lord Yahweh Almighty is the one you are to fear. And Peter says, In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. 
Peter is telling us that Jesus, the Christ, is equal to Yahweh Almighty, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. And setting apart Christ as Lord, Peter says, means fearing him. Remember, we've seen that this doesn't mean cringing, servile fear. Isaiah says that we fear God and he becomes for us a sanctuary. That is a place where you can feel safe and secure and peaceful. Fear then is not being scared, but rather a respectful, awesome, loving relationship. One writer says, To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. That is why the more we experience God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. So that's just a little bit of what it means to set apart Christ as Lord. But how do we do this? What does this look like practically? I think one thing it means is going out into the garden with a Bible, a pen and a notebook. I spend a few moments seeing God as Lord of creation. I just sit there and watch one of those big yellow and black carpenter bees collecting nectar. And I think to myself, aerodynamically, this bee isn't even supposed to be able to fly. How does it stay in the air? Where was it born? What does it see through those large compound eyes? How does it know to collect pollen? Where does it go when it's too windy or rainy? And I remind myself, God created this bee. He knows all about it. He was there to see it be born. His hands fashioned it. He will provide food for it today. He will be there when its life ends. And I look around at everything else in the garden and I remind myself, Jesus is Lord. Creation's voice proclaims it. For by his power each tree and flower was planned and made. God knew that sparrow over there when it was still an egg. Jesus promised that not a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing about it. And then I open up my Bible and I read about God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. Psalm 145 the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And supremely, I see God's character in the person of Jesus. I read about how Jesus interacted with all sorts of people, 
how gently he dealt with the sorrowful, the suffering, the doubting, the disappointed, the sinful. I remind myself, this is what God looks like. He is the image of the invisible God. This is the character of the God I serve. And then I see his supreme love for me by his death for me on the cross. In other words, each day I look at the power and the beauty and the majesty and the greatness and the love of God, and I decide this God needs to be the most important person in my life, day by day and hour by hour. And then I respond in love. Last week, Tim Keller spoke about loving God with all that we are, and he said, You are supposed to go into every single corner of your life, your entire waking life, public, private, inner, outward, and you should constantly be asking this question. How does who God is and what God says affect this? How I think here, how I act here, how I live here, everything. You want absolutely every single nook and cranny of your life to be affected by the love of God. But not just in fearful obedience, but out of a relationship of love. Perhaps we could use a human analogy here. Think of a young man who's fallen in love with a young lady. He doesn't wait for that young lady to reveal her likes and wants and needs to him. He doesn't wait for her to tell him what pleases her. He eagerly tries to find out what she likes. He researches it. He spends hours with her, getting to know her. What is her favourite colour? What is her favourite animal? What is her favourite type of chocolate? Perhaps he asks her friends and family some of these same questions too. He finds out, for instance, that she's a cat person. And so at the beginning of January, he buys her a cat calendar. And for Valentine's Day, sends her her favourite flowers and chocolates. And the reason he does these things is simply to see the smile on her face, just to see her delight in him pleasing her. All that, I believe, is just a little of how we are to set apart Christ as Lord. And when we do set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, a number of other things happen. Firstly, we become supremely confident. Peter asks a very interesting question in verse 13. He asks, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Peter is writing a few years before the empire-wide persecution of Christians, but in a few years' time, the answer to this question is going to be pretty obvious. Who is going to harm you? The Emperor Nero. Christians face the most appalling persecution under Nero. And still today, there are many Christians who face persecution. In his commentary on these verses, Edmund Clowney writes this, Peter writes at the outset of centuries of persecution that the Church of Christ has endured, a chronicle that is still being written today in the labour camps and prisons of a world that rejects the gospel. So Peter cannot be saying that if we set apart Christ as Lord, 
then our chances of escaping persecution are better than average. Right before this, he has just said, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. He is writing to people who are experiencing evil and who are experiencing insult, both of which hurt a great deal. He is writing to people who, as he says in chapter 1, are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. And in the rest of this letter, he has described how his readers have been the target of accusations, chapter 2 and verse 12, ignorant talk, chapter 2 and verse 15, beating, chapter 2 and verse 20, and slander, here in chapter 3 and verse 16. One of Peter's main aims in this letter is to prepare his readers for suffering. Chapter 4 and verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter is not saying that if we follow Jesus we will never be hurt. Rather, he is saying that if we set apart Christ as Lord, we will not suffer ultimate harm. This is why I read verses 8 to 12 along with this week's passage, because the Greek text uses the word and to link verses 12 and 13. Literally, this passage reads, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, and who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? While people may hurt us, God's eyes are on us and his ears hear us so that we are ultimately safe. In a similar way, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, If God is for us, who can be against us? And yet he writes those words against the backdrop of trouble and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. Jesus put it best in Luke chapter 12 when he said, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. If we follow Jesus, we may be persecuted, even killed, and yet ultimately we are safe. We are actually so safe that, as Peter says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Notice that that is in the present tense, not that you will be blessed, but that you are presently blessed as you are enduring unjust suffering. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are you, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. If even being insulted and persecuted and maligned becomes a blessing to me, then I am safe indeed. I can be confident. As Dallas Willard puts it in one of his books, this present world is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Secondly, and linked to our last point, when we set apart Christ as Lord, we become hopeful. Remember back in chapter 1, Peter said to us, 
set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Part of our trust and confidence in Christ is our sure and certain hope regarding the future. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for us. I love the way that Pastor John Piper defines hope in one of his sermons. He says, Hope is a heartfelt, joyful conviction that our short-term future is governed by an all-caring God, and our long-term future beyond death will be happy beyond imagination in the presence of the all-satisfying glory of God. And the evidence for all of this is the resurrection of Jesus. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I've used this quotation from the Anglican Digest a number of times in my preaching because to me it's so meaningful. The writer says, We live as those who are on a journey home. A home we know will have the lights on and the door open and our Father waiting for us when we arrive. That means in all adversity, our worship of God is joyful. Our life is hopeful. Our future is secure. There is nothing we can lose on earth that can rob us of the treasures God has given us and will give us. And this hope that we have will leak out. Verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You probably know that the word that Peter uses here for answer is the Greek word apologia, which is where we get our English word apologetics. It can refer to a formal legal defence in a court of law, but Peter's probably thinking more in terms of the everyday questioning we might receive from people around us as to the reason for the hope that we have. And it's so interesting. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, On my account you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you'll be given what to say, for it won't be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to say beforehand, whereas Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer. So which is it? I think the answer lies in the fact that there's actually the closest possible connection between our giving an answer for the hope that we have and setting apart Christ as Lord. The NIV has translated this as two different sentences, but actually it's just one sentence in the original Greek language. Literally, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord, ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. In other words, when we set apart Christ as Lord and are filled with hope, we'll automatically speak about him. 
This doesn't mean that we shouldn't read up about our faith and have some answers to some of the common questions about Christianity, but it does mean that our personal relationship with Jesus, our treating him as being our most important relationship, is at the heart of genuine Christian witness. One writer puts it this way, If our hearts are not full of hope in the promises of Christ, then when an occasion arises to make a case for our hope, we sense it as a duty to defend doctrine instead of a delight to tell somebody why we are so hopeful. And that leads us to the third consequence of setting apart Christ as Lord. It results in gentleness and genuineness. Verses 15 and 16. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. When our hearts are full of hope in the person and the promises of Christ, then our testimony is given with gentleness and respect, because we're not fighting a battle, but rather introducing a person. We aren't harsh or abrasive because we're filled with wonder that the God of the universe loves us. But we do need to keep a clear conscience. How many Christian testimonies haven't been shipwrecked because Christians haven't practiced what they preached? And yet we mustn't get too discouraged. We will see next time how Peter moves on in verse 18 to say that Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That means that even when we've blown it, our testimony can be that Christians are not perfect, but they are forgiven. Finally, when we set apart Christ as Lord, we become zealous. That's the literal translation of verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager, zealous, to do good. And this idea of doing good is repeated twice more in this passage. Verse 16, your good behavior in Christ. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. You see, our confidence and our hope in God don't lead to lazy inaction and rest, but rather to an eagerness to do good. And notice the radical countercultural mindset in these verses. Peter is encouraging us to have a total shift in our outlook. That when we face persecution, we aren't to cower away in fear. We aren't to hide away until the persecution is over. Instead, we are to see this persecution as an opportunity for us to actively do good works even to those who are persecuting us. As one writer puts it, there are good deeds that even the world must acknowledge are compelling. When those good deeds are done for the very ones who hurt us, they become more compelling. And when they are done with joy, they are almost irresistible. Someone is going to ask, what are you hoping in? Therefore, Christians are not just casual about good deeds, but zealous for what is good. 
Folk, there has never been a time, certainly not in our lifetime, I believe, where Christian hope is needed more. The world simply does not have the hope that we have. Sometimes it's our hope that causes us to be persecuted, the very hope that we then cling to in persecution. And yet in this uncertain time, Peter calls us to set apart Christ as Lord. And when we do that, we become confident and hopeful. We are zealous to do good. And when we're asked about why our lives and outlooks are so different, we can confidently answer with gentleness and respect. May God grant that we have opportunities to do that, even in this week that lies ahead. Amen.